had these words in song about Christ uh, living. He lives who once was dead, and the dead's alive and the lost is found. And now we hear that message again from our scripture reading today, where God speaks to us through his word. And we're continuing in our study of Romans, and today we're in chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that at one point we were united with and captive to sin and death, but we rejoice that now that we have been united in Christ, we have been set free. And I pray for Pastor Bryant now as he brings that message to us, as we look at the context and the ways in which uh, we have been freed and um, are, are citizens of a new kingdom and have a new master um, through the work of your spirit. And may that spirit give Bryant words to speak that we need to hear, and may we have the grace to listen. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Well, good late morning, Christ Church. I uh, have this wonderful task of now opening God's Word in Romans chapter 6, but I want, before we dig into this passage, just to communicate a few things by way of introduction first. Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked by someone in his congregation, when, Pastor, do you plan on uh, taking us expositorily through the book of Romans? 
And his answer was, when I understand what Romans chapter 6 says. He didn't say Romans chapter 5. He didn't say Romans chapter 9. He didn't say Romans chapter 11. He said Romans chapter 6. He later went on to actually preach a sermon series, and he preached 30 sermons in Romans chapter 6 alone. I have 30 minutes to do what he did in 30 sermons. A beautiful book, but I want to spend just a second just reminding you why we're studying this book, where we are, where we've been. Pastor Andrew opened it to us a couple of weeks ago. We finished our study on Believe and Belong through Exodus, coming out of darkness into light. And we started this study, he looked two weeks ago at chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Romans. And then last week he looked at Romans chapter 16, 1 through 5, where we have all of these beautiful doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of original sin, our orthodoxy, all of those things at the beginning of the book. At the end then, he eloquently pronounced all of those names from those individuals in Romans chapter 16 to show us how diverse that community was, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile that were part of a covenant community, now orthopraxy that's moving backwards. The orthodoxy of the book that moves this direction, the orthopraxy of the book that moves that direction, that leads us to this center part, or almost center part, that gives us a full understanding now of how it is that we take this of what we understand to be true and live it out, and how we live out what is true because we know it to be true by the work of the Holy Spirit who reigns and dwells within us. So that is our task the next few weeks to studies chapter 6, 7, and 8, equipped by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, to give us absolute truth in our orthodoxy, to drive us to our orthopraxy, back to the center, that very thing uh, by which we live. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I bought another old house when I moved to Grand Rapids. I bought one out of seminary when we lived in St. Louis. It was 100 years old, a Victorian house, three stories tall. It had a wraparound porch, and it was a dump, a literal dump. It needed so much work. Two elderly women had lived there for years and years and had done nothing to it as it was falling down around them, and their nephew then decided to sell it for them as they moved into another form of living. And this beautiful wraparound porch on one corner of it all of that lap and gap lumber had rotted out and had caved in. You could see the ground down beneath. So as I'm in dialogue negotiation with the guy that I'm trying to buy the house from, he's working on it. He says, everything I do, it's just going to add to the price because I keep working on it. But he was a carpenter, a true carpenter. And so he fixed all of this lap and gap lumber where it's got the, the gap on one side and the next board fits in it with the, with the lap. And so it's very detailed. He was precise and finished it all. It looked beautiful. But over on the other side of the house was the stairs that came up to the front door and there was one little strip of rotten wood about 12 inches long, you know, two inches wide, one rotten piece of wood. And I thought to myself, now I had bought it and I needed to fix this one piece of wood, but I'm not the carpenter that he was. And I didn't want to rip out all of this just to lap and gap that one little piece in there. So I was talking to a neighbor one day and the neighbor says, oh, Brian, no, no, no. Don't tear that all out. Here's what you do. You go down to the auto parts store and you get some Bondo. And you bring that Bondo back 
and you take that stuff, but you've got to clean it off. Now listen to me. You've got to clean it all off. Get it all ready because it's going to take two cans. And you've got one can of Bondo. You put it in your, in your tub. And then you take that other solution and you dump that in and stir it in. But as soon as you start stirring, it's starting to get hard. So you need to get it on there real quick and then sand it all down, paint it, bada bing, bada boom. Nobody will ever know that it was rotten. So what do I do in my... 40 years of wisdom at that point. I ran down to the auto parts store. I got me a can of Bondo, and it's actually a big can on the bottom and a little bitty can on the top. And I turn the directions around, and I start reading them, and it says, clean your area, get it ready, because when you take this smaller solution and you add it to the larger solution, it will immediately begin to harden, so you've got to act fast. So I thought to myself in my 40 years of wisdom and all my construction knowledge, well, if I add that second little bitty can to the first big can and it starts to harden immediately, I'll just leave the second little can out. I'll just use the big can and let, I'm, I'm, no, I'm in no rush. I just bought this house. It can take it, I can take it all night to harden for all I care. So I opened up only the big can and I used that solution and I put it in there and I smoothed it all out and I thought that looks great and I touched it. Oh, I dented it in fingerprints. I had to go out and get a little more, uh, smooth it all out. Okay, keep your hands off of it, Bryant. That's hard for me to do. So I thought, a couple of hours, I'll go back out. After dinner, I went out there. Oh, no, it's just like jello. I had to smooth it all out again. Leave it alone till morning. Come back tomorrow morning. Went back tomorrow morning, touched it. No, it's still nice and smooth. So I talked to my neighbor. What happened? What happened? He said, well, what did you do? I said, well, I just... I took the small can and I, I tossed it aside because I wanted just to take my time and get it nice and smooth. I didn't want to be rushed and have to do all of that sanding. And he said, didn't you hear what I said to you? Didn't you read the instructions? It says you've got to do it this way. And because you didn't do it that way, now you're going to have to do it all over again. Paul asks us a question in this passage, friends. Do you not know? Did you not listen to what I said? Did you not read what I wrote to you? He asks us a very similar question in this particular passage that's before us. Do you not know? Do you not know that you are in union with Christ and you're saved by grace through faith in Christ and that you are dead to that old self, that old person, and you are now alive to Christ Jesus? Did you not know uh, to God in Christ Jesus? Did you not know that? I think sometimes, friends, we don't know that for two reasons. Number one, I think we don't know that because many times we don't live with absolute assurance that our sins have truly been answered in the finished work of Christ. I wake up today and I don't feel like uh, I'm doing what I should be doing and therefore I question if I have salvation and I lack assurance Friends, we can be a Christian and be in that state. I'm not saying that state of a lack of assurance is wrong. But many times we continue in that state because we have this lack of assurance looking to self instead of looking to what it is that God has done for us in Christ. That may define some of us, but I think what really probably defines most of us is this. 
instead of a lack of assurance, it is that we, we don't think that we are dead to sin, but that we're, we are dying to sin, that this is a, a work that me and my buddy Jesus are doing together. I'll, I'll even let Jesus be the big can, and I'll be the little can. You know, he, he brings a lot more to the table than I do, so surely it's, it's a lot of Jesus, and then a little bit of me that comes along and, and makes this thing work together to where I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If that describes you, then I'm only going to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 2 from the same author of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul. We love this passage, Presbyterians, listen. We love this passage. You were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God who is rich in mercy made you alive in Christ Jesus. We love that passage many times because we use that as our proof text for our doctrine, the doctrine of election the doctrine of salvation. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. How can a dead man make himself alive again? And the answer is he cannot. But using this passage from the same author, let me turn that around and say, how can we who are alive to God in Christ Jesus be dead again? And the answer is we cannot. We cannot continue to to be in that state of being dead to our sin because we have been made alive to God by the finished work of Christ Jesus. Uh, Pastor Andrew said last week, Paul never in his 13 books ever, ever addressed anyone as a Christian. 164 times in his 13 books, he uses the phrase, in Christ or with Christ. And what he means by that is our union with Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin, took my sin from me, took it on himself. And he who is fully righteous now gives me the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone so that I can stand in the presence of my Father as one who is fully righteous because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That application, that union, is now the way I live, that I am dead to sin and now I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. He never referred to anyone as a Christian, but you better believe that this was foundational, fundamental for the Apostle Paul, that our union with Christ defined us as Christians, defined us as those who are followers and lovers of the Lord Jesus. That's how we are defined by this particular passage here. And so the Apostle Paul simply says, did you not know that? Do you not know that? He actually just gives us a very quick question, followed by a very strong answer, and then a lengthy uh, explanation to seal this to us, that the work, that we are equipped by the work of the Spirit, whereby we're dead to sin and alive to all that is good in Christ. Look what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? We have to go back to understand the context of Paul's question, and we find that context in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And there what we have is a, the doctrine that we hold to, the doctrine of original sin, because we have the picture of first Adam, Adam in the garden created in the likeness and image of God himself, and we have the picture of our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the first Adam, we are all born in sin. He acting as our representative, as our father. We are now born into the state of sin, the estate of sin, because we are born into the first Adam. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. We already know that. But then he introduces us to the second Adam. The second Adam, the Son of God, Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, who now makes us fully righteous, who takes our sin away. And so what Paul goes on to explain at the end of 5 is, where sin increases in Adam, grace now increases all the more. That God promises to outgrace out our sin. And so individuals are saying, well, then I can just go out there and sin all my fill. If I want more grace, all I have to do is sin more, and I get more grace because he always promises to trump my grace. That's the question, then, that Paul is asking us. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Back in chapter 3, verse 6, the apostle Paul said, people had slandered against him and those that were working with him, because they called him an antinomian, which simply means this, anti, no, namos, law, no law. That Paul preached a gospel that was free from the law. You could just go out there and do all you wanted to do, licentiousness, sin all your fill, because grace is always going to supersede that sin. Paul said that was a slanderous response to his ministry, and he shows that by answering the question right here in verse 2, the first part. Shall we go on sinning so that, we may, so that grace may abound all the more? And the apostle Paul says, by no means. May genonoito. It is the emphatic no. You couldn't write a more emphatic answer in the negative in Greek than Paul did, did here. By no means. He'll say it next week. He'll say it the week after. He says it over and over and over again. Every time you read, by no means, me genoito. No. God forbid, as uh, the King James Version used to say. Or as we could uh, put it, it is so inconceivable that this could ever be so. Why would you even spend time asking the question? Or the way I like to put it is this. No No, a thousand times no. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound to supersede that sin? No. Why was Paul so emphatic in his negative answer, friends? Look at the rest of verse 2. Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now he begins this explanation. So I know what you're saying to yourself if you're following, if you're following the outline. Ooh, he's already been through point one. He's already been through point two. We're now in point three. We're about to wrap this up. Oh, no, no. Sit back because we've got a lot to discuss here over the course of the next few minutes. How could we? The word there, the pronoun we, is emphatic as well. Because the verb, in Greek, you can, do, you can write a pronoun in two ways. You can take the verb and you can add a few letters to the end that will give the, 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 the pronoun, if it's singular or plural, first, second, or third person, you can just add it to the end of your Greek or your, your verb. 
or you can use the actual Greek word for that particular pronoun. But when you put the two together, when you add it to the end of your verb, and you also use the emphatic pronoun, it is so emphatic he's making a declaration that he doesn't want us to miss. And that is this. See, we are so prone, friends, so prone many times to read the scripture and say, well, what that says to me is this. But what I need you to understand from the Apostle Paul by divine inspiration through the Holy Spirit is the emphatic we. We are included in this we. Paul is saying we are living in a covenant, of commu- a covenant community. All of those for whom Christ has come and died for, who has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, we are part of that collective we in the context of our community. So he is emphatic that this is for all of those that are in union. How can we, who died to sin, the Greek word died is in the aorist tense, past tense, but it's a one-time event in the past with lasting repercussions into the future. So Paul is saying, how can all of us, all y'all, how can we, who died way back there in the past when Christ died on the cross with this lasting effect now in the world that we're living in today, how can we continue to live in our sin? He does that three times. He does it in verse 2, he does it in verse 10, and he does it in verse 11. We who died, we who died, died to sin, died to sin. Notice that he didn't say died for sin or dying to sin. It's not as if we're dying to sin, doing this work ourselves, pulling ourselves up and trying harder, or, or dying for sin in that we have done something to omit the penalty of that sin by our own action. But we are dead to sin. The one in verse 2 and the one in verse 11 is in the context of people like you and me. We, how can we who died to sin, we who died to sin, but the one in verse 10 is the context of Jesus Christ. He died to sin once for all to make us righteous. Friends, listen, here's the good news of the gospel, and that is the way that Christ died for sin is the way that you have already died for sin. This old self, look at verse 6, translated old self, the old person, the old man, This person is gone now. He no longer exists because he's dead. He died to sin, and now we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, it's not my past in Adam and my past in the things that I do. It's my past now in Christ and the things that Christ has already done. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why he's so emphatic. How could we go on living three times? Because he's connected us to Christ's death, the final death on the cross for us to bring us into union with himself. Now, couldn't he have stopped there? Wouldn't it have been nice if he stopped there? Why did he have to go and tag on baptism now? (laughs) Isn't that what he does in the next verse? Look at it. Do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? He already made this statement. Why couldn't he just move on and make it easier for us where we didn't have all of this controversy? There are two works that I read this week that were just very um, 
sealed to my conscience, my mind, just, just warmed to my heart. They come, from, they come from different directions, but I want to summarize both of them for you, two authors, and what it is that they said to give us an understanding of what we mean, what we read in this particular text. The first is uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. He used to pastor 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. He's now with the Lord. But Dr. Dr. Boyce said, when you read this passage, O Christian, take this right here and get it out of your mind. Don't think our celebration of uh, baptism in the 21st century today is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says you have been baptized with Christ there in Romans chapter 6. He explains that by looking at the Greek word bapto and then the formation of the Greek word baptizo. Bapto, the short Greek word that means to dip, to wash, or to immerse. Baptizo, the Greek word that means to dip, to wash, or to immerse. But he shows how the original smaller word always takes on a straightforward meaning. So bapto is always dip, wash, or immerse. But then he shows the word baptizo in Greek literature from 400 B.C., to 3 AD now becomes known as uh, uh, an event that takes place, a dramatic event that takes place that brings about a complete, uh, a complete position for an individual. And he uses a couple of passages. By the way, the Greek word here is baptizo, not bapto. So he uses then 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, where the Israelites are coming through the two pillars of water through the Red Sea. And they were baptized into Moses. They didn't get wet, they came through. The, the Egyptians got wet because the water came together later. But it says that, the, that they, the, the Israelites were baptized into Moses because they were following Moses out of bondage and now into that journey that would lead them to the promised land and it is a dramatic event that would alter the change, the complete direction of these covenant people, this body called the Israelites. So that's what he says from 1 Corinthians. He looks at, uh, at Galatians chapter 3. Don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ and now clothed in his righteousness because we are all equal in the gospel there is just one. There is no difference between male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but we're all one in union with Christ because we now have had a dramatic change where we have been brought from death to life. I, I, I just simply summarize that for you for your, your perhaps review in the future. It is solid. He preached probably seven sermons on Romans chapter 6, these verses, these first few verses, but solid, solid stuff. The second one that I gleaned from this past week was Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Dr. Ferguson does connect it to the font. He connects it to the font by saying that this is a, a ceremony and a celebration of a renaming that Christ gives us answers the name of Yahweh in the Great Commission in Romans chapter Romans in Matthew chapter 28, when he says, In your going, the indicative, make disciples the imperative, and do that by teaching and baptizing, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a renaming. So when we bring our children to the font, when we ourselves come to the font, 
And Pastor Andrew says, what is the Christian name of this child? It was done for me. What is the name of this child? My birth certificate, Bryant Craig McGee. You say Bryant in a public forum, I'm going to turn to see who's calling my name because that's who I am. That's who I am, I'm identified as. My mother would scream it, Bryant Craig McGee. And I knew then she was calling me for a different purpose than I wanted to, but she identified that she had caught me probably doing something that I shouldn't have done, but that's who I am. That's my identity. That's the name in which I was baptized. And so, Dr. Ferguson says, the renaming then, he moves forward to look at Jesus' baptism. He goes to John the baptizer and he says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John the baptizer says, oh, Lord, how, how could that be? I could never do that. I've been baptizing all day, all week, all month, all year. And all of these people are coming and I'm washing their sins into this river. How could you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, how could you ever step down into this polluted water? Jesus says, John, you don't understand right now, but it's got to be so. You'll understand later. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is resolute. He set himself, uh, his eyes on Jerusalem. He needs to get to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 12, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized, and I am in anguish until it is accomplished. And what he's saying is, I have to identify with my chosen people, the one the Father has sent me, to wrap my arms around and to save by taking their sin and dying on the cross. He's looking at the cross. I have a baptism to be baptized with, a renaming, a re-identifying that they are no longer dead in their sin, but now they are identified with me, in union with me, and therefore they are dead to sin and alive to all that is good. Now, friends, if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking, okay, does, that, does this mean then that, that, I never, that I'm not supposed to ever sin? Are you, are you preaching then perfectionism? Or if you're not, does that mean that if I don't feel, if I, if I commit a sin, then I don't feel like I'm in union and I have to keep doing this until I get to, uh, to that place where uh, I, I'm in union with Christ because I'm not sinning anymore? Me eganoito. It's... A, no, no, a thousand times no. That's not the answer. Even Paul will go on to say, next week and the week after, especially chapter 7, where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. But, the greatest conjunction in all of the English language, but... God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ Jesus. But, oh wretched man, God has spared me from that because I am no longer dead to sin. If I was dead in my sins and transgressions and can't make myself alive again, why do I want to go back to being dead again? I am dead in my sins and transgressions. So does it mean I never sin? No, no. A thousand times no. Listen. Paul is talking about the dominion of sin. He's not talking about the presence of sin. Look at verse 6, where he clearly says that sin in that old man has lost its power. 
it will no longer endure. He goes on to say, it will have no dominion over you. He's talking about the dominion of sin, not the, the presence of sin. So he moves then, friends. Did you not know this? To saying, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. Now, not consider as, take it, take it into consideration like it's a possibility. He is saying, reckon it. Reckon it as done. Reckon it that you are dead to sin and you are alive to all that is good. This is a difference now, loved ones. Listen, if you've wandered away, come back very quickly. I promise I'm getting to the end. This is the difference between what we talk about in these beautiful doctrines that we hold to in justification and sanctification. Justification is answered for you in verse 7. Look at it. What does he say in verse 7? For one who died to sin has been set free from sin. Boom. He has been set free. Look at your footnote. He has been justified. Justification is a one-time act, a declaration, a legal term. God looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, because you're dead to sin. That old person no longer lives. That's justification. Now he moves on in the rest of the verses that remain to telling us, in verses 12, 13, and 14, how we're to live in the righteousness of Christ. We no longer live in unrighteous life because we can't go back to that, but we live in the righteousness that's given to us in Christ. That's sanctification, an ongoing work where we are growing in holiness, dying, dying to our sin that is present now. But here's what I need you to understand. The beginning of sanctification is not an emotion or a feeling. Although you may have an emotion or a feeling. The beginning of sanctification is knowledge. To know that you have been justified. He died for you. He tells us that. He seals that to us. It's done. The one-time declaration. And now knowing that. This is the only reason and the only ability that I can fight against the presence of sin in my life is because I know that that old man is now dead. Do you know that? Do you know that? That your sins have been utterly demolished in the finished work of Christ himself. Now then we can move to the imperatives that he gives us in chapter 6, verse 12, 13, and 14. Don't let your sin, don't let sin reign in your body anymore. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. We have not, let me give you the difference. The indicative, the indicative is what is true, the state of being. The imperative is the exclamation point. Now you go, you are commanded to go and do what you now know to be true. In Romans, the book, the whole letter, this is the first imperative that shows up. In chapter 6, verse 12, it's all been indicative. That's that orthodoxy. We do not get another imperative until Romans 12, verse 1, the orthopraxy, where he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Friends, back to verse 2. Here we are, right there on this 
portion, this page of Scripture. We are, how can we, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? This is the context of community. And matter of fact, if you read ahead, once you get to chapter 12 and you're getting all of the application, all the orthopraxy, all of the application will be in the context of a community, not an individual. He goes through all the spiritual gifts because we use those spiritual gifts to bring honor and glory to God, but to build up the body of Christ. He talks about us being generous inside the body that we might then in turn serve others outside of the body. He says we internally submit to those that are in outside places of authority over us. All of the celebrations in the body, those feasts, we no longer celebrate because we have a gospel to go out and tell to the world that they are all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The context in which we live this is not simply application for you. It's application for us. We now, equipped by the Spirit, come in here and we encourage one another saying, we are dead to sin. And now I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let's take that gospel out there and let's go find all of those for whom Christ died on the cross who now will effectually apply that by this same Spirit. What a gospel. What a gospel. John Owen in his treaty on the dominion of death and grace, I paraphrase, says this, there are two almost impossible tasks for any pastor, and the first is convincing someone under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. And second is convincing someone who is no longer under the dominion of sin that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. Friends, if you're here today and you have been united to Christ by his finished work on the cross, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are dead to sin. And you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? You've heard it. You've been looking at the directions don't just take one can. Jesus is both cans. He's all of it. And he has sealed this work to us in his finished work on the cross. That is the gospel. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in this sweet, sweet, beautiful gospel that you have given to us that our sins are truly forgiven in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that today we can live in that context beginning with this absolute knowledge of knowing that because this is true we now by that same spirit who boils up within us like streams of living water can enable us and empower us to fight our sin to live in the gospel of grace in the world uh, that's before us until that day of glory so father equip the saints of christ church equip the saints all around this globe, all of your elect, equip them to do this very thing. Romans chapter 6. For your glory and your honor, through Christ our Lord we pray. And all God's people said amen and amen.